Beloved, now open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 23. Our text this morning will be the first 12 verses. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. We're reading from the English Standard Version. Feel free to read along in your favorite version. Amounts to about the same thing, I hope. Verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens and hard to bear and lay them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. And neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. As far reading to God's holy and errant, infallible word. All flesh is as grass, its beauty is as the flower of the field. Grass withers, its flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. This is the word that was just read to you. With God's help, it will be preached. Please be seated. As we begin to conclude the Gospel of Matthew, we see that, uh, in a way, we've returned to the very beginning. The challenge in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, which is really the beginning of the New Testament, is the challenge to see your own sin. And seeing it to repent because the one who is going to take away all sin and make all things new, the Christ, is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the unique mediator and only Savior of the world, is at hand. And that's what John the Baptist was saying. But the people had to be prepared because, as you know, we are all very busy. I was in downtown Houston yesterday with my friend Mark Better. I've never seen so many people so very busy. We had a tournament, a basketball tournament. Those are delightful things. Basketball is a wonderful sport. People were happy. I saw great numbers of, of men and women bearing the University of Miami uh, polo shirt, and I stopped to talk to every, every, you know, so, several of them. It's wonderful to rejoice. But we get so caught up with things that we forget the main event. And the main event was not the final four. The main event every day is the Lord who is with you, who has promised to be with you, who goes before you, who has prepared a place for you, for your eternal soul, your priceless soul, who has loved you beyond compare, 
and who is not only your Savior, but is your Lord, and that you are to obey him cheerfully out of gratitude for all that he has done for you. We return here with the statement that the proud have exalted themselves, the self-righteous have looked on, on their own deeds and and thought they were worthy to lift up to God as an offering, saying, Lord, you be praised with my excellence, my knowledge, my, my bountiful uh, offerings. But it was all in conceit, and it was all by deceit, for no flesh can boast in God's presence. And God, in the second person, of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus, born of the Mary, but born of Mary, the Virgin, but but the second person of the Trinity, God Himself, makes Himself available to His people, announcing good news, and most brilliantly teaching the Word of God that had been distorted, had been perverted, twisted, misunderstood. Restoring, reforming, the great reformer. And the humble heard it and they, and, and they received the Christ, beginning with John's baptism. But those who were proud saw no need for repentance, did not make a way in their hearts for Christ. And now in this final week of the Lord Jesus' life on earth, we see that the whole conflict has come to a... a, a a climax. This whole contest is coming to a head. But you see, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and the scribes have set their minds that what we have here is a troublemaker come to town. This man who purports to come in on Palm Sunday, by the way, if you guys are keeping a liturgical calendar, you're right smart, because you're right in the right place. You're going to hear liturgical preaching about what's going on there in Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem on his last week. This is it. Yeah, they, they laid out their palms. They worshipped. Even the children were singing hosannas. The scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and those proud ones that couldn't see, they couldn't see the glory of the Son of God. They, they were abashed. They, they, they were angry. They say, well, this is blasphemy. How does this man possibly receive the praises of infants and nursing babes. Well, God has ordained it, Psalm 8. Yes, sir. This is, this is the king and coming glory. We come full reign because we come full round to the very essence why Jesus is about to denounce Israel in such scathing terms as has never been seen anywhere and will never be seen again, I don't think, until the last judgment. <laughs> To the final day of the history of all mankind. They're testing Jesus. They're asking him questions. First, they, and finally, they ask him a question about the most important commandment. Jesus, of course, being the very spirit of prophecy, he answers brilliantly. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second one, just like it, love neighbor itself. And of course, they were willing to not love neighbor as themselves. They were willing to take this neighbor from Galilee and scorn him and humiliate him and sentence him as a blasphemer and crucify him. Utterly failed the law. 
Those who boasted in the law as being righteous in the law have utterly failed the law. And the only remedy, of course, when you fail the law is the gospel. But my friends, here's the pathetic thing about the state of Israel. You know, the Spirit announced that the, the axe was already the root of the tree at the coming of, of Jesus. John the Baptist, the axe is already here. It's laying on the very taproot. It's, this whole thing is coming down unless you repent. And you would think that people would be quick to jump to gospel peace, to jump to gospel forgiveness, to seek the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But failing the law, they also failed Psalm 110, which announced the only king and the only high priest that would take and save God's people. They had not, not a single understanding of the law, although they preached law day and night. They had no understanding of the gospel when the very gospel itself was before him and failing on both strikes, Jesus now has to denounce this nation and its leadership as completely failed. And that's the context, my friends, of his last week. Sure, many received him with palms, but most were preparing thorns. Most were preparing scourges. Most were preparing the cross. The teaching here, as Jesus addresses these leaders that are void, empty of any true knowledge of God, is this. That you who are here and hearing this passage must guard yourself against a great danger in the church. You must guard yourself against a great danger in the church, and that is imitating the hypocrisy of men in authority. That's the biggest stumbling block. That is, that is the, one of the worst things that could ever befall a church, the deception of the blind leading, leading the blind. You must guard yourself against a great danger in the church, imitating the hypocrisy of men in authority. Now, I'm going to go quick, quick because I, I think you'll understand where I'm going with this. Three points. First point, beware of hypocritical leaders. Beware of hypocritical leaders in the church. Jesus is addressing the crowd. He's addressing his disciples. This is now pastoral and practical teaching. The, the, theolo the theoretical and theological parables are all behind us. He's had a lot of instruction, moral law, ethics, and all that. But this is most practical. It's something you ought to be watchful. The imperative is, well, it, it, it is given from the beginning of, of his words here. He's commanding you, be careful, watch out. That's what a shepherd does. He warns against wolves. He, wants, he, he, warn, he even, war, he even uh, a pastor, a good pastor, will even warn against rogue sheep. Yeah, rogue sheep, they have teeth, they bite, they kick, they do harm. They butt their heads, they bump their shoulders for, to, to gain the prominence in the church. So they're not wolves, they're rogue sheep. They're here too. Pastoral, practical teaching here for our own edification today. That's why it's here in the Bible for us. It's necessary instruction at that time because, because of these treacherous plots against Jesus. And Jesus wants us to know that the, his cruel trial, his condemnation, and the crucifixion, uh, uh, he understands that all this is before him. Don't, don't let that be a stumbling block as it was to the Jews because the cross of Christ is a tremendous Jew to anyone, anyone anticipating a glorious reign of their Messiah, a king 
such as Solomon, and riches, and honor, peace. Beware. Jesus is addressing the crowd, his disciples, but he's addressing us. And here Jesus warns against hypocrisy in church leadership. Now, the definition, let me just define the hypocrisy, not a, complete, not a complete definition. Hypocrisy is a feigning to be what one is not. It's a deception as to real character and feeling. It's an acting term, a theatrical term. But especially in regards to the sermon, in regard to morals and to religion. There are various forms of civil hypocrisy, but the one that we draw attention to here is religious hypocrisy. What are the symptoms? A hypocrite is easy judging himself, but harsh judging others. They're hypercritical of others. They'll excuse their own sin and guilt. And it's because they don't see their own sin and guilt, there's no repentance. There's no need for repentance, my friends. They're, they're fine. The characteristic sin of the scribes and the Pharisees is in this vein. They were self-righteous. And because they were righteous, they were proud. They could look at others and say, Lord, I'm, I'm so glad that you have not made me such as this one over here. Oh, and you, you know, and you who know your theology and are Calvinists might even say, Lord, I'm glad that you predestined me and by your spirit have sanctified me so I'm not like that worm over there. That vile sinner, pride, legalism. The scripture warns us, warns us not to measure ourselves by ourselves or, or to even measure one against another. It's the Lord who judges hearts. And that's, my friend, integral to what Christ is doing because he's Christ. That's the point. He's Christ. And Christ is the one who is, appoint, is appointed not only a judge in Jerusalem in that day, but judge of all men. He, Christ will judge all mankind on the last day in the flesh as a man. Of course, he is divine, so he will judge rightly. The characteristic sin of all the Jews who ignored John the Baptist. No admission of guilt. No repentance, especially no, no continued repentance. I mean, we've got lots of, lots of uh, denominations, lots of theologies that will say, well, you need to repent, come to Christ, and that's the last time you'll hear the word repent in any church. That's the last time you'll, you'll even think of the notion of repentance in most people's minds. So I've repented. Yeah, I repented in uh, April, with, what was that, April uh, 19? Yeah, that was in, in 1989. I repented. Repentance unto life is the teaching of Scripture. Until your last breath, you will be repenting. And you might even repent of your last breath if you're not ready to meet your Lord. No admission of guilt, no repentance unto life, no demonstrating fruit of repentance. In fact, if you're caught in sin, you want to bury it. You don't want to give the God, God the glory that he's turned you around and and show to your brothers and sisters that, no, it's a new you. No, I, yeah, I did that. Yes, I'm, but now God, be, be glorified. God, be thanked. He's brought that sin to my remembrance, and he's given me strength. And look, I, 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 look at the zeal of everyone who truly repents. You don't need, the elders should not need to be asking the question, is that person repentant? A true repentant person will be eager to sell his repentance to demonstrate it, to clear his name, but above all, to clear 
the name of God who's his sanctifier. That zeal is intrinsic to true repentance. Now, hypocrisy is always dangerous. But hypocrisy in church leaders is especially, especially deadly. It's a lethal disease. It's crippling. It's soul damning. It spreads very easily. And no mask of any quality will contain its spores. It's difficult to contain hypocrisy. And it's very difficult to control it or even subdue it or eradicate it. And you know that Jesus' teaching is a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. It weakens the resolve of every Christian, but it'll even weaken the resolve of the godly. It so enervates the, the boldest of people that Elijah had to run from wicked Jezebel like a school child who's been defeated in a third grade, whipped by a seventh grader. It weakens the resolve. It is a stumbling block. We're warned about it in Matthew 18. Children see this and they do not understand. Children hear the narrative of hypocrites at home and they are critical of their Sunday school teachers. They are critical of their elders and deacons. They're critical and they've just had it with the church. Well, the parents, yeah, they shouldn't be talking so loosely. But the problem is in Matthew 18, if you are a stumbling block to a child, the least child, the Lord has a special millstone that is custom tailored to your neck size, and he will place it on your shoulders and sink you to the bottom of the sea. And that is not an idle threat. Unless you repent, unless you confess, unless you feel the damage that you have done to others, especially in the church. Beware of hypocritical leaders in the church. Second point, you must obey your leaders despite their hypocrisy. This is the hard part. The easy part is for us to identify hypocrisy. The hard part is to obey the leader set before you despite their hypocrisy. Oh, well, what, what, no, how, how could that be? That's ridiculous. Well, that's the teaching here. All authority is from God. Romans 13 does not distinguish even civil authority, which we know in our day and age, we know and we are convinced that they're ungodly and many are reprobate. We just feel it to our bones and yet we are under their authority. They carry the sword not in vain. That authority is set. Authority in the church is set. God is sovereign. Calvinists know this, right? This is taught in Scripture. It's ordained by providence. God is, God is Lord of all nations, angels, king of men. Whoever is leading the church, whoever is leading your Sunday school, is placed there by God. The scribes and the Pharisees then, at that day, they sat on Moses' seat, that is to say, the seat of judgment, just like we find in Exodus 18. We recently preached that, uh, that, that narrative. Moses needed help. He arranged it by appointing 70 men, various tiers of appeals of courts, you might say. And they're there, appointed by God himself, not by Moses, not by Jethro, by God. The seat is of judgment. All leadership, my friend, involves judgment. I, I know that grates against many of you uh, because we just read here 
all men are your brothers. We have but one father. Who is this man? Who is this man that thinks he is able or even has the authority to say anything above any other opinion in the church? The cedars of judgment, all leadership involves judgment. Second Timothy 3, you know, Paul tells Timothy, not only that he should be careful to have no one disregard his youth, but he says, preach the word. And then he says, instruct and correct and reprove. If that doesn't strike you as odd, let me explain how odd it is. Timothy was not an apostle and he was not a prophet. He did not have any extraordinary gifts of judgment. He was an ordinary man, even, even though he was an evangelist. He didn't have special knowledge. He was not an apostle. He had to judge by the same tokens as we have to judge if you're an elder by the word and by the spirit. And yet he's told to correct, to reprove and train. And he is the model for all those in authority. That's, that's what leadership is to do. By the way, the elders are asking me to preach two sermons on leadership development. Maybe they'll consider this as one of them. We need to train up leaders. This is a leadership sermon. The seat of preaching and teaching is one always of being true to the Word of God, of teaching the whole counsel of God, of explaining it in terms where people can understand it. If they don't understand, to meet with the people. The people, of course, have the responsibility of asking questions and to meet with their leaders. That's, you see the model there in Christ's school with his disciples. But what you must understand is you are obeying God when you are obeying authority. You are not obeying the man. You are obeying the office. Even when Paul says, children, obey your parents, he qualifies that by saying, in the Lord. I think Dr. Sproul said that in his, uh, in his video. If, the, if your husband commands you, wife, if the husband commands you to do something that is against God's will, uh, they, you, by no means may, you by no means obey that husband. You must disobey your husband and obey God. On the other hand, if he says something to you that is perfectly in accord with the will of God, well, then you ought to consider his, his position of authority. He is your head. In the Lord, that's the condition as they teach God's word. Galatians 6, verses 1 and follow. Or better, not only in the Lord, because the Lord gives you his spirit and uh, grace to obey not only that commandment, but every commandment. If you're a Christian, you are promised grace to obey. And the Lord has predestined your good works from eternity as those that will, that will glorify Christ as your resurrected head. His seed, my friend, the seed of Christ in you will sprout. The seed of Christ in you will flourish. It will flower. It will, again, bear fruit. And that is going to be true of every Christian. But as you do so, not only will you do it in the Lord, obeying all authority, but as unto the Lord. In other words, you're... You're the Lord who searches the hearts of all these hypocrites who, are, who are about to stone him or worse, also sees your heart day by day and why, not only the thing that you do, the thing that you say, but why you're saying them. And if it's not birthed in gratitude for your salvation, if it's not birthed in faith in him as supplying the grace to water the seed, to cause it to grow, then, my friends, you are already struck out. This is why we are absolutely adamant about condemning any works 
The covenant of works is a covenant in death. And anyone boasts in that, as we have here, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes doing, they only condemn themselves even further. They're digging themselves a deeper grave to hell. You are to obey as unto the Lord. And Jesus says, whatever these religious hypocrites tell you, hey, they're in Moses' seat. Do whatever they tell you. What? Thorough and complete obedience. Sincere obedience. In love and honor and in the fear of God. I mean, this might, this might shake up not only this church, but our entire nation. We have a rebellious nation who loves revolution. At the, at the least stink of any hypocrisy in a king, we're off with our guns. Study your, study, study your American history, you'll find that to be true. Leaders will give account of their leadership, surely. Look, that's plain from Hebrews 13, verse 7. Obey your leaders in the Lord, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over you, over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. I mean, they're under a more severe judgment. Teachers are under a more severe judgment. But not everybody want to be a teacher. Everybody want to be a teacher? Let's study. Let's get Bible groups everywhere. Let's just multiply teachers. You multiply teachers, you multiply judgments. Is that what you want? You better be ready if you want to be a teacher. Obey your leaders and submit to them. They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now, here's the thing. And here's the responsibility. That's the responsibility and duty of leaders. The responsibility and duty of followers. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Well, that would be of no advantage to you. Now, I want you to spend some time in that this afternoon. Hebrews 13, 7. Ask yourself, have I really honored? Paul says to Timothy, those leadership deserve the double honor. Are you giving them a cut rate? Or are you giving them the double? You must obey your leaders despite their hypocrisy. Leaders will give account of their leadership and of your compliance do not obey authority if they command you to disobey God. That's why you need to know the Bible. I mean, this is the, this is, this is the trademark of all cults. They assume authority not given them in the Bible. They become hyper-authoritarian. They go beyond the Bible. They add to the Bible and subtract to the Bible nilly-willy. If you're not alert to that, the blind will lead the blind, and both will fall into the pit. You disobey God when you disobey lawful authority. And what is the net of it? Well, what we're going to, we see here this group, here's, here's where Jerusalem is heading very quickly, within a generation. What, where is this going? Increase of sin, ignorance, superstition, disorder, anarchy. And that is the fruit of when you knock the knees off of authority, what you're left is a bunch of sheep screaming on every hilltop. Follow me. This is the way. You grieve the Spirit who is with us and among us. 
You invite discipline if you're a Christian. And you invite judgment because Jesus judges not only Israel, but every church, every lampstand is trimmed by him and every church is visited every time an assembly is called. And he's in the midst for blessing and for judgment. I will not say cursing. He's not through with us. Now you may say, well, I don't know. I mean, whatever happened to liberty of conscience? You have a liberty of conscience. No one can possibly take that away from you. But you better be very sure that you have grounds to disobey. And you also likewise should be very sure that you're able to pay for the consequences in disorder and anarchy and confusion and in sin. Read Romans 14. Be assured that you have liberty. Be assured that blessed are those who do not sin in their liberty of conscience. Sinful shepherds, of course, lead. They will lead sinful sheep. Sinful sheep will follow. This is normative. Okay. Uh, that's not what's going to happen in America, though. Okay. Most happen in America is any, any, we have this proclivity towards perfection. Well, not in ourselves. We go easy in ourselves, but in others. And if our leader shows ah, some blemishes, eh, I mean, especially if he might even repeat that blemish, uh, we are prone to dismiss them. The quickest thing we can do, my friends, oh, well, this is America. You know how many churches there are in Houston? Just, just leave the church. What, what vows? But you can only do that if you assume that that leader is really so far gone in your mind that he's dangerous. And if that's obvious, then you really ought to press charges. Do something to, to alert the other sheep that you have no private judgment in this. And to do so is hypocrisy itself. And that's why you are so harsh with others and so easy on yourself. Sinful shepherds lead, sinful sheep follow. But in America, there's another choice. Just jump, jump folds, which is foolish because there's really only one fold. And Christ will catch up with you there, and he will instruct you there. The last point of the sermon is you must never practice your leader's hypocrisy. That's the big warning. That's what you have to be careful. That's why you need to know the, the words of, of God. Hypocrites preach God's word. But let, let me just say this. Jesus here gives the benefit of the doubt that even a broken clock is right twice a day. That's basically what he said. They, they, the, the men here don't really preach the word of God consistently. And that's been the whole exercise here in Matthew. All these corrections, incredible. But they do preach it not consistently, but sufficiently where the authority has not been yet removed from them. Authority will be removed from them shortly. But that's for Jesus to himself, the judge of all, in his time and place to decree. The destruction of Jerusalem is what I'm aiming at. You must not practice your leader's hypocrisy. Hypocrites preach the words of God, but they don't practice it. This is legalism, the chief sin uh, of the Pharisees, the law in the form of a covenant of works. That is the, 
If you read between the lines and if you're astute in your theology, what we're, what we're seeing here in Israel is an active interest in keeping the law unto justification. As if the commandment, do this and you will live, has any chance of succeeding in a son born dead in sins and trespasses under a fallen race and Adam is ahead. But these Pharisees and Sadducees know no head in Christ. They only know Adam as their head. The law in the form of a covenant of works is an unbearable burden. And these leaders will lay that uncomfortable and unbearable burden on proselytes and all of their disciples, offering them legal commandments, but no power at all, no promise of grace, no relief of uh, sins to be remitted, remitted or even confessed. They are not examples of confession of sin to the sheep. They are not examples of repentance to the sheep. By the way, a good leader is an example of both confession and repentance. If a leader is repenting, it's not that he is not an able leader to get rid of him because he's a sinner. Ah, there's more hope for a repenting a repentant leader than there is one that appears to be blameless and white as a lily. The law commands but offers no power to perform. And this is what these teachers, they're laying unbearable burdens. And all the while, given the appearance that they are comfortable with these unbearable burdens, the merce, they are merciless in this way because they have never experienced the, the, the mercy of God either. They've never tasted the sweetness of God's forgiveness. They, they don't know the peace of God beyond understanding. They don't know joy inexpressible at worship. They don't, they, they don't do, they don't, they're not here as guides in those most important experiences of true religion. And so they are merciless. Hypocrites abuse their authority and all they care about is placating their name and their reputation everywhere. They're egotists. They love to be seen. They love to be noticed by others. If there's any platform in a social media, man, they are on it. They display religiosity. They will not subscribe the ordinances of God, but they will establish their own ordinances and give weight to them. And so they dress to appear in public very pious with great devotion and knowledge. And they crave attention for themselves. And they simply will not allow others to go before them. They are not, they, they, they are not equipping people to excel themselves. My job is to get rid of this, of myself here as, a, as your pastors one, one day, to have you equipped and recognize true leadership one day, godly leadership one day, and so the, the church can co continue to go forward in safety and in and, and, and righteousness and in peace and in order. That can't be done if I, prom if I promote myself or if I'm bigoted and, and, and if I uh, am prejudiced. Hypocrites rob God then of his glory and assume it to themselves. God is... They're really the only teacher of all men. All men are God's disciples. All men are, in this sense, brothers. Again, this is not 
When you read your Bibles, you know that the Bible, in things practical, always bound the will of God uh, to, to the right and to the left. There's always parameters. On the one hand, we have, we have rightful authority. We can't rid of them. We, we have structure in the church. We have office in the church. We're not levelers. We say, yes, plainly, that God establishes authority. And at the same time, all are brothers in Christ. Women, men, children in Christ are all members and brothers and sisters. We established both. But the hypocrites are bothered by that. God is the only Father. He is in heaven. He's not on earth. And Christ has been the sole instructor of Israel from the beginning. It's the spirit of Christ that was in the spirit of the prophets. And he continues being the great prophet of Israel. <laughs> and so God's robbed of his glory. And in all that we do, if we don't seek God's glory first, we have deceived ourselves. Our work is in vain. It's straw. It, 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 it's thatch. It, it's, not, it's not wood. It's not stone. It will not endure the judgment. And God measures not only our actions, but the reasons why we do what we do. Hypocrites negate and contradict true greatness. They're a living display of contradiction. They think they're great, and, uh, but they do not exemplify the kingdom greatness that Christ has exhibited and has preached consistently from the start of this gospel. The greatest in the kingdom is to be the servant of all. That is to say, he is to give his life, his strength, his, his ambition. He is to lose himself. He forfeits his life. Can it be said, my friends, of any of you, well, I died. I, I, no, I don't have any right to my life. I gave that up when I became a Christian. And, and my prayer every day is that will be done. So if the Lord wants to humiliate myself, me, before others, well, I, I, yeah, I have been, I'm, I'm too proud as it is. Well, that's a good gift. Somebody corrects you in church, thanks, thank him. Even if it's wrong, Take a, take, take, a, take a moment and say, hmm, let me, let me pray about this. Again, Jesus is not abolishing the authority of leadership and establishing servanthood. But what he is is establishing and commanding true godliness. Hypocrites are proud. Hypocrites will, they will. Hypocrites will be humbled by God. True servants are humble. And they will. They, they will be exalted by God. When? Uh, that's up to God. He's the judge of all. How? But no one is to jump quickly and presume to lead Jesus in judgment. That itself is hypocrisy. We wait. We wait on the Lord. And if you have been humbled, the Lord will raise you up. He will renew your strength like the eagle. He will cause you to run and not be weary, walk and not faint. Even in this coming heat of summer, you'll be fine. But if you don't, you can expect to be under his discipline if you're a Christian and under the weight of wrath if you don't know the Savior. Let me conclude. You must guard yourself against the great danger in the church, that of imitating the practice of hypocritical leaders and authority. 
You know the best place to identify hypocrisy, don't you? It's in yourself. That's an art. That's 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 an exercise for every Christian. You should know the telltale signs, as outlined here in this passage. This is good reading for the Lord's Day afternoon. But having seen these, you should apply your heart. Well, that's subjective. I don't know. I can't ask the Lord to shine the light. The Spirit, the Spirit has been given for the conviction of sin, for judgment. Ask the Lord to give you His Spirit. The Spirit is not given only for instruction and light and joy and peace. It's given also for correction. Ask the Lord, do you identify hypocrisy in yourself? Have you confessed hypocrisy ever? Have you blushed at your own hypocrisy? Are you judgmental of others, especially those in church leadership? For every nasty thought, every nasty word, you ought to have many more words of prayer on their behalf. You are to think in exercise, surely God has not abandoned this creature who is yet in somehow in his image and has some knowledge and has some giftedness and he has displayed some courtesy. Surely there's something that you might think to encourage that person who has now become, in your mind, not even, probably not even in reality, your enemy. Pray for them. Go out of your way to honor them. Doubly so. That's the commandment. Obey their, their godly counsel and their godly correction. My friends, you always remember that repentance is a way of life. It's, it's a, repentance is a, is a way. It's not an act. Repentance is a, is a way. Do you apologize easily? Do you apologize often? Freely? Or only when coerced, coerced? Only when there's a nine millimeter pointed at your temples. Another thing that needs to be said here is that it, there's, no, it's, there's, no, it's, there's no sin. It's not a sin to desire to seek praise from God. It, it's not a sin to graciously receive comfort and uh, words of encouragement from others. Sometimes I get the impression that you know, you're afraid that you might give somebody a fat head if you say, well, you know, that was a good class. Thank you for teaching why don't you take a few risks for the next year or two? See if we get some fatheads around here. I don't think we will. I think if you're gracious to them, they'll be gracious back to you. And that's the communion that we have in love, helping one another, encouraging one another. And especially as you know that it's not in the flesh that they have these gifts and graces, it's of God. Acknowledge God. I tell them, I praise God for you. He has really given you some gifts here. We need more of that. Leaders are especially warned, however, to be an example to the sheep. Well, what do you mean? Well, I mean in every, in every way. If you can't be an example in every way, you ought not to be an example in any way. Because, because mature leaders in the church are to be firmly established in all the counsel of God and sufficiently practiced that they're not a scandal. And they will not blaspheme the Lord. The Lord's name will not be blasphemed among the nations. And so leaders, ask yourself, are you an example in prayer? Private prayer especially. That's the big challenge. Private prayer? 
It's you and God, not you and your wife, not you and your dog. It's you and God. But how about in prayer meetings? How about in your Bible knowledge? You know your Bible. Do you, do you know your shorter catechism? We're Presbyterians. Do you, do you show, do you, do you show, tangibly show love to the lost? Do you go out of the way for this one that appears marginalized, appears lost, appears lonely, confused? Or worse, they have already exemplified anger and boastful, lustful sin, sexual sin, things that are abhorrent to God. Will you go out of the t- out of your will you go out of your way to rescue that soul? We're talking about evangelism. We've already mentioned encouraging others. If you're a leader of visitation, be be among your people, inquiring how they're doing, what they're doing, hospitality, charity. Those are great, great things that all leaders are to be about. My friends, we do not do this. In our strength, we do it in the strength that Christ provides. Christ died for our sins. He did not remain dead. Christ rose from the dead. When he rose, he rose to glory, having been vindicated by the Father. And because he humbled himself to the most extreme way, he was exalted. In keeping with his teaching, the humble are exalted. The ones who are proudfully exalted will be debased. But Christ is exalted, and he's at the right hand of God the Father. He's there as your priest, as your priest offering intercession for your sins, as your priest laying down, as the victim of the priest, the lamb laying down his life. And as the priest as well, taking that same sacrifice and applying the blood to your souls. He's your priest. He's your prophet instructing you very, very plainly, very, very carefully. He is your teacher. I don't make things plain in the, the, the preaching of the word. Not everyone here is going to understand what I've said. There are young minds here. But God has ordained other places where young minds can avail. Their parents are to be teaching them, rehearsing these sermons, explaining these five-syllable words that this Cuban madman uses on this congregation from time to time. The gospel is that God receives sinners. Even these that are boastful in their sinful state, thinking they are something as fallen sons of Adam under under the covenant of works as the law would measure them, they think they can offer something of self-commendation. That's a horrible, horrible, blasphemous notion that dismisses the offer of Jesus to sinners. Yeah, so thank you very much. I'm glad. He's a, yeah, he's a great example. I'm doing fine. I don't need Christ. It's the worst, worst sin you could ever commit. On the other hand, knowing yourself truly and knowing that you are the greatest, the most known sinner you have ever met in your life is yourself. And every Christian ought to be able to say amen to that. Because you don't know anyone better than yourself. And if you don't know that you're a great sinner, you don't know anything. You don't know yourself, and you certainly don't know God. You are that hypocrite.
So have mercy on yourself and turn from that kind of hypocrisy and receive Christ. And he's ready to offer you himself in the gospel, to forgive you your sins, place his spirit upon you, and give you everlasting life. That, my friends, is good news, even to the vilest, the vilest of men. And glory to God, who is that kind of perfect Savior. Let us, all of his people, rejoice and give thanks. Let's pray. Lord, we have preached this long. We pray, Lord, that this has not been a burden, but that has been a word of instruction to those that need correction and a word of encouragement who know their vileness, but also know the excellency of Jesus and his righteousness. We pray that we would ever exalt our head, Christ, and debase our false head, Adam. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's have God worship with an offering, please. Oh, it's, we have a communion table here. I have one thing answered. So, all right. Let's, will the elders please come forward? And do we have, uh, do we need a, a deacon to assist? No? Okay, very good. We will now come forward to the table. Thank you again for catching me. I, I fault here. Thank you. friends, if you are a Christian, if you're visiting here, uh, have been baptized and made confession of your faith publicly and are, it can point to someone that God has ordained as a leader in, a, in, a, in an evangelical church, a gospel preaching, gospel believing church, then uh, you are invited warmly to this Lord's table. It's not a Presbyterian table at all. It's a, Lord, it's, it's a Christian table. And uh, it is the Lord that invites you, but I, I speak for him as his minister. And uh, this is a, a source of strength alongside with the preached word. Uh, you receive nothing here that you don't receive in the preached word. The preached word, you receive Christ and all of his benefits. Here you receive Christ and all of his benefits, but in another way. And you might say, biblically, in a new way, because now that Christ has come, we see God more clearly. And we, we have always believed in the love of God to sinners in the Old Testament, but now we see what that love does. Love is as strong as death. That's an Old Testament quote. But in the New Testament, we see that that is indeed the case, that God has literally loved you and would give up all worlds, all his life, his last drop of blood for even one soul to redeem. That's how precious our souls are to Christ. And he's done it most willingly and cheerfully. He longed, he said it to his disciples, for this night of his passion. So if that's the case, uh, I will also read the words of institution, just so we have some knowledge of the sacrament. Jesus, uh, Paul says to the Corinthians, I received from the Lord, 
what I delivered to you, Corinthians, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. You do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you'll proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is your prophetic office. Uh, as you pray and as you uh, sing, you are witnesses to Christ, not only to our neighbors, but to angels. And here you are a commonwealth of prophets proclaiming the Lord's death and proclaiming it for a time. You're saying, we'll continue to do this and dine with our Lord until we see him face to face. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And so let a person examine himself. We touched on that point twice today in the sermon. Let him examine himself then, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The commandment is to eat and drink. The commandment is not to abstain. The commandment is to consider that you are indeed a sinner and resolve even now to repent from all, all appearance of sin and to, and, to, and to dine with your Lord. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we had judged ourselves rightly, truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And that, my friends, is the perfect tag to the sermon. Let's pray. Lord, you are the judge of all men and you know our hearts. You know all here that are through with self. I cannot conceive one word to answer you in a thousand if you were to judge us. And as such, Lord, we yield gladly to your judgment. We also yield, Lord, to your charity because you have provided not only forgiveness, but righteousness and peace and reconciliation in the body of Christ. And so we, we hunger, we thirst for this. And this is why we come to this table. And this is why, by your grace, we hope to continue to come to it until you return. May you be glorified, Lord, as we worship you as your disciples. And may each of us lean to your bosom and express our love to a Savior who has loved us unto death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. As the bread is being passed, I'll, I'll pray for the Lord to sanctify the, the bread and the cup. Now, Lord, do common elements, bread and wine. We pray that these might glorify you in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Do so, Lord, according as you have promised. We ask through Jesus. Amen. Thank you.